timbers went into the dry, long grass, bits of bark and trees, but where we were praying for, right there, it was all spared. Deliverance. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Now, this psalm could have been written by David of Malakuta. Of course, it wasn't, but it could have been. Whoever wrote Psalm 116 is deeply, deeply grateful. This is a psalm written after a crisis, the emergency has passed, but the memory of what he went through is still so vivid. Now, as we go through this psalm, I want you to try and identify with the psalmist. I want you to feel his joy. I want you to enter in, stand in his shoes. I want you to feel his panic, try and feel his relief, and try and feel his gratitude. Because something of what he has gone through will resonate with each of us, particularly if anyone here has run to the cross of Jesus Christ for shelter from the storm that's coming. At a deep level, this will be your personal testimony as well. So he begins by telling us about what, why he loves the Lord. I love the Lord, he said. He tells us why. He was in a desperate situation. He says, the cords of death entangled me and the anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. His words, the cords of death entangled me, they sound nightmarish when you think about it, like from a horror movie. We don't know the details, but he, he's had a terrifying experience and he looked death in the face. Maybe it was, a long, it was an illness which brought him to the brink and he almost lost his life. Maybe he was the victim of a plot in which he was to be the scapegoat. Either way, he was so close to death, he almost came to the point of total emotional collapse. He says he was overcome by distress and sorrow. Now, of course, in our risk-adverse world and our safe, law-abiding city of Adelaide, there is a good chance that you have avoided terror like this. <laughs> Maybe the closest you can come to is that near miss you've had in the car when you had to swerve so violently your heart was in your mouth. Well, maybe you'll remember then the feeling of panic, the pounding of your heart, the sweat on your neck, the shakiness of your hands afterwards. But to really imagine what the psalmist is going through, I want you to imagine living with that level of anxiety you felt in that moment for days or for weeks, perhaps months. Returning soldiers, they know, know about this. People who've tried to escape from cults or domestic violence situations, they know. Such sustained stress can pulverize your nerves. It can bring the strongest of people to the verge of mental collapse. In verse three, when it says, the anguish of the grave overcame me, the original Hebrew suggests being dragged into a terrifying darkness. So there was a dangerous situation, and then after that came a desperate prayer. Verse four, then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. Now the sense of the original is I called and I kept on calling. It wasn't just a moment. And there was passion in his plea. And we, re we remember, maybe like Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, who kept going back, didn't he? Twice, three times, to beg to be delivered, pouring himself out again and again. 
But then he says, the Lord who is gracious and righteous, our God, full of compassion, literally a mercy doer, because when the Lord has compassion, that doesn't just mean he feels sorry for someone, it means that he has compassion in action, does something about it. God who is full of compassion, so that verse six, when I was brought low, he saved me. In other words, this man has been saved from death by the Lord. Now, can you think back to times when the Lord answered your prayers? Um, in 2019, Sally went backpacking through Europe. And I can testify as a dad, and there's nothing that makes you feel quite so helpless as having your daughter backpack alone, and nothing quite so good at focusing your prayer every single day. Well, after she came home, she said God really looked after her. One night, Sally found herself walking late at night through Florence to the backpackers' hostel. Streets were narrow. She said people were lurking in the doorway. She felt unsafe. But God, in his kindness, in his compassion, sent some Aussie angels to look after her because when she, on the train coming into Florence, two Aussie guys were walking through the carriage, recognised an Aussie's accent when she heard Sally speak to the girls across her about Vegemite. And then when the train pulled into Florence, they said to her, where are you going? We won't touch you. We'll walk, with, walk you there to make sure that you get there safely. Verse six, the Lord protects the unwary or the inexperienced. So there's the reason why he says, I love you, Lord. I love you. I love you, Lord. And then in verses seven to 11, the psalmist turns and talks to himself. He says, return to your rest, my soul, or in an older version, be at rest once more, O my soul. This is the self-talk of the saved, someone who's been through the crisis, who's come out, but who's still feeling the trauma. Because when you think about it, the fact that he's telling himself to return to a state of rest means that even after the moment, he's looking back on that moment, he's currently not in a state of rest. When you've gone through a trauma, it stays with you. The scene keeps replaying, you cannot stop it. The confrontation, the car crash, the emergency waiting room, recalling the moment, the trauma goes on. And so now we see that there's a helpful form of self-talk which we can practice where we become a pastor to ourselves by reminding ourselves what the Lord has done for us. You're not in the crisis. Remember, he rescued you. He says, return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Remember? And then he says to the Lord, for you, my Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So he's reminding himself of what God has done for him, delivered him from death, and once again enabled him to walk before the Lord. Now that doesn't mean the trauma is completely gone. In verses nine and 10, he's replaying what's happened. Um, or verse 10 and 11, I trusted in the Lord when I said I'm greatly afflicted. In my alarm, I said, everyone's a liar. So he's been the victim of some sort of plot. It's involved widespread deception. It could have been King David. 
Verse 16 is repeated in Psalm 86, which was from David, and several times people were plotting to take David down to end his life, and King Saul, we know, sent assassins and spies and armies against him. His own son staged a coup against him. We're going to get to that in the book of 1 Samuel, term two. So this might have been David, but we're not told, which is good, because what it does is it makes it even more generic, doesn't it? It's the experience of God's people. It may have been that there have been times which seemed to, which, where it seemed to you like you didn't have a true friend in the world when you'd given up hope in people and in your alarm and dismay you said everyone's a liar. You didn't have people but you had the Lord. And the Lord came through grace when there was no grace from any other source. Now Roy Clements who's a commentator, he um, spoke on this verse, I think he got the essence of it. As he says, as if the psalmist was saying, in my moment of crisis, I discovered I was a believer. I was a real believer, I wasn't just a nominal churchgoer. And at that crisis, the faith that I discovered enabled me to speak of my distress, not just to myself, but to God. I told him exactly how I felt. I told him how miserable I was in the situation I was in. I'm greatly afflicted, I told him. I told him I'd been hurt by my friends. All men are liars, I said to him. I didn't put him on a mark of pious triumphalism. I didn't have to. In the extremity of my helplessness and hopelessness, um, I, I developed a relationship of trust with God that liberated me from pretending. I could only be honest with God, brutally honest. Maybe that's why he listened, because listen, he did. I tell you, I've never realized it was possible to feel so much devotion for God until the day I realized that he paid attention to me. He deliberately turned his ear to my prayer. I love the Lord, because he heard my voice. And that brings us to the question in verse 16. So what shall I return to the Lord? for all his goodness to me. And we're listening in to the self-talk of the person who's deeply indebted to the Lord out of a sense of thankfulness. He wants to respond, he knows that God's been good to him, and he wants to somehow repay the Lord, not that he can, of course, how can you repay the Lord? He asks the question, how can you repay the Lord? But he wants to give something back because he's so grateful. And so he says he's going to do four things. He's going to lift, he's going to fulfill, he's going to sacrifice, he's going to call. Lift, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Now you could look through the Bible and you will not find reference to a cup of salvation. It's a metaphor. But you know, when you raise a cup, you're celebrating, you're toasting someone, aren't you? And then you drink it. He's been delivered. He's not just going to forget. He's not going to let the moment fade. He's going to celebrate his deliverance. He's going to raise a toast to the Lord and he's going to drink it. He's going to let what's happened to him fill him up. He's going to lift up the cup of salvation and then fulfill. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. He says it twice, verse 14. He says it in verse 18. The fact that he says it twice tells us there's resolve about this. He's really going to do it. 
He's going to fulfill his vows. Now, what vows? Maybe the vows he made when he called out to the Lord, deliver me, I'll do this for you. Well, now the Lord's delivered him. He says, I'm going to do it. Maybe it's a vow he, he made later when he reflected with thanks for his deliverance. Either way, he said he's going to do something for the Lord and he's going to come good on his promises. This is part of his response to grace. And I think, brothers and sisters, we can learn from this. When was the last time you said, God, I'm overwhelmed by your grace, I'm so, so astounded by your, what you've done for me, that this is what I'm going to do for you. When did you say that and when have you done it? Of course, we get nervous about making vows, don't we? Uh, because the Lord will hold us to them. Uh, Jesus said, don't make vows or oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Didn't he say that? Yes, he did. But he wasn't meaning to say that we shouldn't ever decide to do anything for the Lord. The Bible, when you read it, is full of people coming before the Lord with offerings because of what he's done for them. The Israelites, it was their regular practice, they always brought the first fruits of their harvest regularly before the Lord as a thanksgiving offering. It was just normal. Jesus, when he said, don't swear oaths, he's simply saying, when you make a vow, don't appeal to, in your oath to a higher authority than God. Don't say, oh, I swear on my mother's grave. Just say what you'll do and then do it. Many of you, I know, have done this. Um, you gave pledges so that Mitch could join our church. And many of you have come good on those promises. And if you haven't, it's time to, because you made a pledge. Um, it's right and appropriate. It's a way of worship. You'll fulfill your vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Then sacrifice. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you. Now, in this case, the thank offering was probably an animal sacrificed at the temple. That no longer happens because Jesus' death does away with animal sacrifices. And yet the language of sacrifice, interestingly, is still used in the New Testament in connection with praise or thanksgiving. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that confess his name. Or Revelation 7, around the throne in heaven, the angels, the seraphim, fall down on their faces before the throne. They worship, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks be to our God forever and ever. I don't know if you think of you giving thanks to God is an offering which is a right part of your worship. It is, that's why the Lord calls your, when you sing songs of praise, for your brains to be engaged, to engage your heart, and then you can give it back to God. This is part of your offering to him because of what he's done for you. Lift, fulfill, sacrifice. Lastly, call. I will call upon the name of the Lord. It's said twice again. Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Verse 17, I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. So that alongside rejoicing in salvation and being thankful is the psalmist calling. He's determining to keep on calling on the Lord. Now again, this is not just something that he lets other people do. The priests, those up the front, the worship leader. He's determined to do it himself and to keep on doing it. 
He will call on the name of the Lord. And that's how a person, I think, responds to God's grace. Lift up the cup of salvation. Fulfill his vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Sacrifice a thank offering. Call on the name of the Lord. How will you respond? Okay, now if we had more time, which we do not, uh, I'd love to pass around a microphone, in a, if we had more time, but we don't, to answer two questions, which I'd like you to think of the answer to. Okay. Um, to write down, or to answer the question, why do you love the Lord? Why do you love the Lord? If I went around with a microphone and put it in your face now, why do you love the Lord? Can you think of an answer? And then to tell him, tell him, that's right. Lord, this is why I love you. Tell him. And then if it's right for you to answer the question, what shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness towards me? Now, you might be thinking that's a bit pushy or forced. This psalm is a personal response from one person. You can't generalize out to something everyone ought to do. Of course, it is his personal response. These are his personal words. But his experience of grace isn't unique to him. It's something every single believer in Christ shares. And as well as that, at the same time as this being this man's personal response, this is God's word to us. He's teaching us here, isn't he? Through his word how to relate to him in faith given that he's delivered us. Because that's what he's done if you trust in Christ, he's delivered you. The psalm actually points this whole direction. Not only does the experience of grace resonate with us, but the psalm itself points to the hope beyond death that comes only in Jesus Christ. What he feared, verse three, the anguish of the grave overcame me. It's literally the anguish of Sheol, which is the place of the dead. In other words, it wasn't just dying that he was afraid of. He was afraid of where he would go after he died. But because God saved his life in this life, he then speaks with the same confidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us. Verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants because he knows death isn't the end if your trust is in Christ or the Lord. This is a confidence that goes beyond death. The same God who he can testify was with him in his life is with him in the next. And the resurrection of Jesus makes that hope focused and solid. This is what the Apostle Paul himself thinks. He quotes verse 10 to make this point in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, it is written, then he quotes Psalm 116 verse 10, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, Paul says, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself confidence but also what we see so beautifully modeled for us in this psalm is love expressed love should be expressed it's one thing to love the lord it honors him however to tell him to tell the lord why you love him 
Um, we haven't got time for a microphone, but I'd love it for you to do it. At some point today, find a quiet spot and tell the Lord why you love him. And then lastly, of course, it's right to express this not just individually but corporately amongst all of God's people gathered together, which is why handing around a microphone would be a good idea. But um, what's intriguing about verse 13 and 18 is not only does he say, I'll fulfill my vows to the Lord, but he says, I'll do it in the presence of all God's people. So hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll find a moment when we can do this. Um, When you've had a chance to think, why do you do love the Lord? And we can bring it. Now, I know in Australian culture we shy away from it. We think this would be big noting ourselves if we said this is how the Lord's been good to me. And didn't Jesus warn us against showy hypocrisy? Yes, he did. But yet, this psalm exists and it says there's a rightness in responding to God's grace when God's people are gathered together. There is a rightness in giving God the glory. When we bring glory to ourselves, that's when we're in danger of hypocrisy, but we avoid that if we're praising God for his kindness, which he's shown to we who are undeserving. And isn't it to God's glory if his people should remind one another why we love him? Okay. How do you respond to what God's done in your life? Here's a suggestion. Lift up the cup of salvation. Share your experience. Give thanks to the Lord. Offer to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And even if you want to, fulfill your vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Um, All of us need to do this, actually, because it's right and appropriate. God isn't watching us from a distance and just happy when we tune our televisions off. He pours himself into us. He's our God who loves us and showers us with grace. And it's so right that we bring it back to him. Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks for your deliverance. Uh, We praise you for answered prayers in our lives. For times we know and we can recall, times we can't recall, but you delivered us. We praise you, God, for looking after us. And merciful and gracious God, we praise you for the cross. We praise you that at the cross you delivered us, at such great sacrifice to yourself. When we were undeserving, when we were ungodly, when we were powerless, you sent your son to die for us and you raised him to life from the dead so that in him we will be presented before you, resurrected, righteous, blameless. How good you are. We love you. We love you. Amen.